0: This is Scott Becker with the Becker Private Equity Podcast, also the Becker Business Minute. We're thrilled today to visit with Sal Pushemi. Sal's got multiple roles. He's the Chief Executive Officer and co founder and partner of HRN LLC. He's also the, the, the CEO and CIO, uh, Chief Investment of uh, D'Andrew Partners Capital Management. Sal, can you take a moment and introduce yourself and tell us about your firms and, and where you
1: focus today? Scott, thank you so much for the privilege of putting me on your on your podcast here. I, um, I'm originally from New York. I live in Miami right now. And um, the two investment firms, I've been managing my own balance sheet since the age of 29. Since uh, after leaving Goldman Sachs, I raised money to buy a lot of distressed real estate from Bear Stearns. And then after that, I headed out west and we did the same thing. Irvine at the time, back in 2008, 2009, was sort of ground zero for a lot of the Um, You know, a a lot of the mortgage meltdown that we saw with a lot of the banks out there, IndyMac, for example. So I followed my old boss at Goldman Sachs out there, although I wound up in Las Vegas and he went to Irvine. You know, we were still able to, you know, really cultivate a lot of uh, relationships with a lot of families that have trusted us over the years into these deals. And since then, we have actually um, done some real estate deals, which we like, but we're more into venture and private equity now. Um, because our investors feel that they have a little more control over that, and which means that they can sort of, you know, understand they can control the basis and the terms of which they invest into these companies. And we've done a lot of life science companies, and actually just recently, as of yesterday, we just received news that one of our life science holdings in one of my venture funds uh, just got FDA approval for a artificial defibrillation device, with device which you can use. Um, with the power of an iPhone, and it's about the size of a Coke So that's going to make it, make a tremendous impact. And that's really what um, a lot of our family investors are looking at today. They're not looking really to chase the zeros anymore or go after the, the 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 shiny objects. They're looking to impact themselves and make a legacy. Having a legacy to them is a form of immortality, Scott. Does that make
0: sense? 100%. And when you see people investing today, What's the temperature for risk today? I mean, the temperature across VC versus PE is often very different. VC more binary, PE a little bit less risky, but still plenty of risk. But you're less binary, less zero or one, less winner or loser. What's the temperature you see from family offices today in terms of investments in their temperament for risk
1: today? The risk for them is uh, it's a function of what they believe risk is, and when we're looking at VC deals, the way we sort of diffuse that risk, and you're right, it's binary. Um, whereas, you know, you're waiting for a lot of good things to happen before you get any, you know, before you get paid or see any success. But we mitigate that risk by working with CEOs who have been through several economic cycles. Um, this is both for real estate and venture. They've had several exits. Some of them, in some cases, have had up to 69. We're working with a CEO right now who, will, uh, who has had 15 exits, and we've just been invested in a company uh, that will be his eighth unicorn if he plays his cards right. And so they look at risk a little differently because they like to see, for them, who are the other investors that are going into them? Are they really um, long-oriented, patient money that's looking to put together a lot of these um, types of deals where they can, have, um, you know, they can control the risk and they know who the investors are and they know what's in the cap table? or are they um, sort of leaving their chance to the wind in the equity markets where you don't know if something's going to be a meme stock the next day or the other. They're looking at really having control over the risk by working with people who have had a lot of experience. And as we say in this industry, all risk is human, right?
0: Certainly. And when you look at that, you know, there's two types of diligence. One type of diligence is you really go deep dive into the company and really know the company. The second type of diligence, which Many small investors that invest alongside very large investors will be able to understand. Is your real diligence is who else is in the cap table? You know, so for example, if I'm investing side by side with Andreessen Horowitz, I'm not doing my own diligence. I'm investing side by side with them. W- what do you see out there in terms of family offices and how much diligence they do? Does it depend on the size of investments they're making? How does that look?
1: They all have very sophisticated um, staffing that, that ha- you know, it's pedigreed, and they do all the diligence for them. Because for them, it's not really so much losing money, it's losing reputational risk. And that's really what they don't want to be involved with. And so when you're looking at these families, they're not really following the big institutions, because I think the big institutions have sort of, well, I mean, I don't know, the performance isn't there as it used to be. So a lot of these families are their own um, they're their own institution in and of themselves, and they usually come in two sizes: emerging, meaning they just got paid and had a big exit, or you know, they're set, you know, the two Gs, the third generations, the you know, second generations, and and their forward, where they have a different complete impact statement. And what you see is a lot of the emerging families just sort of follow on to the research of the larger companies, such as Rockefeller or some of the other name brand families who made their wealth, maybe in life sciences, they know it well, so they're reinvesting into it. And that's really what you wanna see is that there's a, a real, and I hate using the word synergy, it's terrible, but somebody, you know, you don't want someone who's never invested in the space before, or had any success in the space before leading an investment unless they've had that success, because that's usually a driver for other investors to come in. Because they all look at the, it, you can look at the company, you can go down and you can, you know, there's a lot of great ideas. And since moving to Miami, this has been a tech hub recently. And you've seen a lot of great ideas and, you know, very pretty pitch books. However, the experience isn't there, Scott.
0: You you, you talked about something that is fascinating, sort of the, the second generation, the third generation. You know, often the first generation, you've got some sort of scrappy entrepreneur who built something significantly you have a second generation that may or may not be in the business. What do you see as successful second generation investors, let alone operators? Some are operators, some are not. Do you have any characteristic thoughts about how do second generation, you know, family members do well when they weren't the ones
1: that made the money to begin with? But but how do you sort of look at that or think about that? You know, I, I wrote a book about that entire process and I'm not here. It's called Investing Legacy, but I pull out a um, a part of a movie called Ford versus Ferrari. And it was um, a very, very humbled, um, you know, Harry Ford. And he was being antagonized by um, Enzo Ferrari. And he says to him, you're not Henry Ford, you're Henry Ford Jr. And that was really the linguistic kill shot that pushed him to go much further. There is this thing where you need to a lot of pressure with the second gen, where they have to keep up um, with the successes or exceed the successes. But it's, not, it's more or less how the family wants to structure. Do they want them involved? It's a lot of times you don't want to have a family office if your kids do not want to be a part of it. It's, you're running an investment platform, and, a lot, and that takes a tremendous amount of responsibility, and not a lot of people want that. So what you're starting to see is that you see the second generations become a little more concerned about what we call statement assets. And these are assets that provide certainty. It could be like an office skyscraper in a city or, or you know, in, in this case, a professional part of a professional sports team, because that's the ultimate status right there. But it also they're helping to build the brand and network without having to really roll up their sleeves but by using their name. That only works if they're not involved in the operating day to day business, because remember, sometimes these second gens, they get stuck in the operating business. But on the extreme side of that paradigm or that continuum is the Rockefellers who just sit on boards and use their influence to raise money around these companies.
0: Is it, talk for a moment about something you just mentioned. You know, so what you mentioned—the status symbol, sports team, status symbol—and there could be nothing more true, is there? Like, I'm going to ask you a couple of questions about family wealth, family offices. The, the the family that owns the sports franchise, anybody who becomes a billionaire. It seems like the first thing they do, besides move to Florida, is they 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 want to invest or own a piece of a sports team. When did that become the thing? When did that become sort of the, the, the big status symbol? You know, it used to be the big yachts, but really over the years, it became having some interest in the sports team.
1: When did that become the thing? That became the thing around the 1960s and 70s when, um, you know, you had the confluence of content and broadcasting rights. Disintermediated from the government, and again, I covered this with a close friend, Richard Walken, in my book Investing Legacy. But you, this is really where it became—it became, it became a, a very, very clandestine, closed club. Think about the the brand franchise protection of the NFL, right? I mean, being they don't allow just any owners to come in there, right? And it's and it's a secret club, and it's probably the most powerful network in the world. But think about it; it's also been affected by two things one is that valuations keep going up because people see that as a store of value. These franchises only go up. Uh, Very rarely do they lose money. The other thing about it too is that you have the introduction of gambling coming into it now so that there's going to be different and more alternative revenue streams. But still, you can't get into this like a hot crypto coin or a coin or anything. You got to know someone and that's the legitimacy that people are constantly chasing. It's great that you could have a great name, and your father made a name for himself, but you're going to carry that on by building maybe a diverse portfolio of ultra fine art and sports teams, because there's two things that wealthy investors never complain about paying for, and that's ultra fine art and sports teams. It, it,
0: absolutely fascinating. I mean, and you're talking about the billionaire class, not not a different class. I mean, that's really the billionaire no. class that starts to look at sports teams.
1: A hundred million plus. That's a real family office. Because if you look at the economics of running one, you have to have at least a hundred million dollars in assets in order to pay for, you know, the expenses. And that's really the, and, the and you, you know, yeah. It,
0: and really, you really have to, I mean, but, but for a sports team ownership, you have to, you have to, you have to be worth a lot more than that, unless you can get in a small piece of a, of something, you know, and, and we, we have, you know, colleagues that invested a little bit in this a little bit of that that weren't right, they weren't billionaires, but they're not like the Dan Schneider's of the world, the Mark Cuban's of the world, that really are the, the name guys in them, or the Jerry Joneses. But talk about this notion of the family office. People talk about a family office and all different variations of it, but at a hundred million, you're not gonna be able to staff the talent for family office. You know, let's say you let's say you'd be paying Goldman 1% a year or somebody else 1% a year, to sort of manage your wealth or your assets, whatever the number is, you're not going to alternatively at a hundred million, spend a million dollars on your own team. At that point, you're not gonna be able to get the
1: talent you would need. You'd rather invest with a guy like yourself. Right, and you'd rather club in with other people. You know, I've seen, yeah, I think the smallest deal I've seen as an entry point that we were looking at has an an entry level point, the price tag was a hundred million dollars for the stake. And that was an NFL team. And that is something that, you know, these deals are fluid. They come and they go and everything like that. Right. But, but you're but um, you're
0: not, you don't have a hundred million dollar net worth you put to put a hundred million in the NFL team unless no. you're,
1: you know, it'll, no. it'll, so it'll, it'll at be that point. Serious. It's, it's usually depending on the franchise, such as the you know, NBA or the NFL, a lot of guys syndicate this. And so you'll see like a lead come yeah. in and he'll be the GP. And then he'll syndicate it with you know a bunch of guys, you know maybe a handful of guys at twenty million each, and that's really for them, um, you know enough for them to get them motivated to invest in it. Now, if they just have hundred million, they're probably not going to put twenty million into a sports team. Um, who knows? But I think you know as their net worth continues to grow, and a lot of them you have to remember have operating companies that throw off that much a year too, right? So and that's a whole other. thing. It,
0: it depends if so, they
1: if they yeah. still have great operating companies, or if they've liquid if they sold their operating companies Correct. to get there. Correct. You're I mean, absolutely right. So yes, yeah, so ca- different capital sources have different needs and wants, and it's just a matter of making sure that that's matched. But when you go across the top of the pyramid of the asset classes, you're looking at fine, you know, among other things, and um, you know, f- these sports teams are the most coveted, and that's because they have tremendous brand protection.
0: A hundred percent, just absolutely fascinating. The TV concerts for these things are insane today, and so forth. Besides fine art and you know sports teams when you talk to ultra high net worth families or or you know very wealthy families where is the core of their investments is it is it venture tech driven stuff is it real estate stuff what's the mix and what do you see people most excited about today
1: it's mostly real estate um and a lot of people were buying real estate you know they weren't buy, a lot of the families weren't buying up until like the last two or three years and the reason behind that is because they were smart and they've done this before a lot of them are real estate families but what they what we're starting to see now is that a lot of them have, have um, branched into things where their philanthropy arm has been in the past sort of a gateway drug to life science investing. And so a lot of these people are looking for the terrestrial equivalent of legitimacy on earth by investing into earlier stage life science companies alongside some of the biggest families and most successful founders, you know, in the world, actually. One of which for one of our companies is the 2018 Nobel Prize laureate for oncology. And that to them is sort of like it covers the philanthropy philanthropy part that they were into, but it gives them a lot more efficiency as far as the return on the capital where you have like 99.5 cents on the dollar going towards its intended cause because it's a direct investment into these things. And you're starting to see the rise of societies and club investing now where people are using their influence and the superior deal flow to club together to get into these deals because they have a shared value system. Not everybody wants to go into it, but when you start talking about the risks, breaking it down. As I said before, the track record is the number one. You can go into the market and you can fall in love with the idea. However, the operator that has to wake up in the morning, look at himself in the eye, knows what he has to get done in order to achieve value. And so a lot of these families now, like regardless of how big they are, they love getting involved in these companies. And one of the companies we're involved with has Steve Jobs' uh, wife, Lorraine Jobs. Um, her family office is, is invested into this stuff because they're looking now to make... It's not—it's not so much of just I'm looking for the next Ferrari. I'm looking for the next Chinese object. It's like how do I how do I create a stamp of immortality and legitimacy um, for years to come? And you know, a great example of that would be anyone that has a name on the side of a library. Well,
0: you no, know, it's absolutely fascinating what you're talking about. It's sort of that second act that they've made big money. Their family's made big money, and now they're looking to still make money, but they're looking also have influence and and make a name and make a legacy. Absolutely fascinating. So what are, you, what are your big priorities this year? It's 2023, fasting time in the markets, fasting time in business, interest rate hikes just about starting to slow down, hopefully inflation
1: started to slow down. What are you most excited about and what are your big priorities this year? I think the priorities for us is that we're going to continue building out the, you know, part of the world-class life sciences, earlier stage life sciences portfolio that we have. But we're also going to be moving into things, I think, where distressed real estate and a lot of opportunities are going to be coming. You know, 450 basis points, 500 basis points is a lot. Um, it's a lot, Scott. And there's a lot of people who bought towards the end of the market where you're going to start to see, I think over the next six to twelve months, you'll see some interesting things happen as far as that's concerned. So we're going to be looking for, and you know, we're we're very agnostic as it relates to the opportunities. We just prefer to be with Class A statement assets. So, for example, it could be like a you know the apartment building here in Miami. It could be in some sort of distress or whatever. That's something that we would be interested in. Alternatively, a lot of the other stuff we're doing is focusing more on sports now, and um, you're going to hear a lot from us in the, you know, later in the year as, as we start to go into this because of the relationships we've made and and some of the, um, you know, the sports families that we've gotten to know, and that's really sort of exciting to me because that brings a special panache to these investors that they probably wouldn't be able to get elsewhere, and that sort of keeps my 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 cold heart warm a little bit. If that makes sense.
0: It, 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 you know, let me ask you because you're on that, Sal. You know, in in back in the day. There was these big, colorful sports families, you know, George Steinbrenner, Jack Kent Cooke. That's one thing that's not changed. Because even if you go, if you fast forward a generation, all these big ego guys, you know, whether it's Jerry Jones, Dan Gilbert, they they all want to be in the sport. Dan Schneider, everybody wants to be in the sports business. Somehow or another, once they've made a fortune, not everybody, but almost everybody, it seems. And Mm -hmm. is that something where it's going to continue to attract sort of, you know, big over-the-top people that just want to be a part of that
1: you know it's 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 a a... personality business because it's a happy business these sports businesses are run like small businesses believe it or not but they're happy businesses and they make money so you know it invites people to have a personality to come out there and and just you know flex their ego that's really what it is i think jerry jones's yacht i passed by the other day on the highway he has a $250 250 million dollar yacht. It's about 300 feet long. It's the most beautiful yacht I've ever seen in the world. But when you have a personality like that, of course, they're going to want to be the spokesperson and continue to be the face and the name for the, and the brand of that. Um, and and you do. And that sport does attract the front office because that attracts the talent, of course, in the teams. So.
0: No, and I just just read the Jimmy Johnson biography, which talks about sort of the, the constant love-hate relationship between Jerry Jones and Jimmy Johnson. And, and so I'm going to ask you one more question about sort of the, the super wealthy people and so forth. You know, like you see the super wealthy people and sometimes there, there are people that might have been cool, not cool as kids, such an amorphous phrase, just stupid phrase, but then they want to join every golf club they could possibly get into because – now their money may be able to get them into things that they couldn't get into, you know, before. And, and so yeah. you see that. Is that just, is that just a spectacle of wealth? They can't help themselves. Some of them are the, one of the people, some of them are the very nicest people in the world. They just, they just, it's like, it's a feeling of, oh my God, I'm into a club that wouldn't let me in before. And my, my money has got me there. What, what did you see a lot of that?
1: Yeah, I mean, of course, the smart people, especially the 1,000th of the 1% use their money for influence. They're not out there buying Rolls Royces. So, you know, it's one thing to get into the country club, but how do you leverage it, right? Think about it. If you, if you have a, um, a, sport, a bunch of sports owners in the room, they're probably the top venture capitalists, top industrialists, top media person, top owner of this. And the, the networking there is just insane. It's, it's like YPC on steroids. And that's really what people are looking for is to be able to be with others like them. And they use their money as influence to do that. The middle class do that with their country clubs and things like that. Um, But at some point, people don't want to be part of the same country club anymore because they sort of outgrow it. And they want to be part of something else if they are determined, you know, professionals looking to build a legacy, of course. Some people don't. They just- Right. If
0: if, if If they still have that drive and want to go to the next level and want to make deals and do things. I mean, and some of them are- have gotten wealthy, either inherited or wealthy. And they're also deal junkies by nature. They're, they're sort of a deal junkie. Like, you know, one of my buddies got very wealthy He's done 200 deals since he got wealthy.
1: And I think probably just is just a yeah. deal junkie. A lot of these guys are deal junkies. I mean, Mick Jagger's a deal junkie. He went to London Business School. Nobody really knows that about him, but he is. And he's probably worth, I think he's worth over a billion dollars as a result of that. So think about like if you're a top star in your group, he's probably investing alongside let's just say Warren Buffett. I mean, there's pro- who knows, right? But I mean, he's right. not a fool. You know, these are guys, but everybody comes as part of, because that's really how capitalism works is being a deal guy or deal girl today. Absolutely
0: fascinating. Sal, I want to thank you for joining us today on the Becker Private Equity Podcast. What a pleasure to visit with you. We'll get a chance we visit with you in person we're right down the road from you. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Becker Private Equity Podcast, the Becker Business Minute Podcast. What a pleasure. Thank you.